morning, TLC. I love Christmas, okay? I always loved Christmas. Uh, but have you ever been with somebody, or maybe you yourself have experienced this as well, where uh, what you thought you were going to get, you didn't actually get, or uh, you really kind of hoped that maybe there would be a little bit more? Uh, maybe you uh, feel like one of these kids. But you're gonna give me a thunderbolt display. That's stupid. Stupid. (laughs) Amazing. Um. Okay. So I have a. I have a story that's probably gonna make me look worse than those kids. Um. Brenda and I had been dating for about two and a half, almost three years at this point. I told you that I like Christmas. It's important that you understand why I like Christmas, okay? Uh, the whole Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages, some of y'all heard of that book before? All right, that had came out like in 92, I think, but it's 1997. I've not read the book. I don't know anything about the book, okay? But my two major love languages are gifts and quality time, all right? That's why I love Christmas so much, okay? Because you don't have school, you don't have anything, you get to hang out with the people that you love, all right, get all this quality time, and they give you gifts. Like, all right, it's like the like perfect holiday for me, and Jesus' birth, too. Like, I don't want to forget about that, I'm a pastor. So, Brenda and I have been dating for a little while, and I didn't have... Uh, like words to put to those like just internal feelings. I didn't really understand why I loved Christmas that much. And uh, this whole concept of love languages was not something that we knew about. But you usually show your love language in how you, uh, what, what you do for others. Okay, so uh, I had gotten Brenda, I don't know, like four or five gifts um, that I was going to give to her for Christmas. Now, uh, mind you, Brenda is a senior in college, okay? She does not even have a part-time job because she works, uh, she's on the singing team that's like uh, a ministry team that travels around. They get a tiny, tiny stipend. She takes all of her money and pulls it together to buy me a Christmas gift, okay? And um, it's 97, which means that the N64 has just come out, and this was the gift that she got me. It was amazing. Did I say N64? What did I say? Okay, okay, okay. 
She gets me an N64. Now, this is a $200 gift, okay? And this is back in 1997. That's like $350 in today's money, all right? It was a big-time gift. Now, um, she pulled it out of the back of the trunk, and she handed it to me. I was so excited, all right? It's a gift. I'm opening it up. It's an N64. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I can't believe it. Like, nobody has N64s yet. Like, I got an N64. And then I started looking in the trunk to see where the other gifts were. Don't look at me like that. I see right there. <laughs> the most authentic face I just saw was right, but she was like. <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. I literally started kind of looking in the trunk to see, like, I'm like, all right, it's an N64. That's great. But isn't there, like, probably another controller and probably, like, another game and maybe, like, another game after that? Like, I got her four or five gifts. Where's my four or five gifts? Disgusting. Yes, you hate me. I get it. I understand. I deserve, I deserve your wrath right now. I totally know. Now, I didn't say something like, this is stupid, $1,000 Thunderbolt display. I didn't say that, but my face said it. And Brenda, like, was like, Are, is it not, like, what you wanted? And I was like, oh, no, 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 it's great. I didn't know if there was any, anything else. <laughs> Needless to say, not the greatest Christmas gift exchange experience that she and I have ever experienced or had together. Um, if you have your Bibles today, I'd love you to open up to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Sometimes the gifts that we get are not what we expect or not what we desire or maybe not what we think we need or want. Now, we've been in our series, Sovereign, as Jordan mentioned, for the last few weeks. Uh, we've basically been walking through during this Lenten season, this season between Ash Wednesday and Easter, this 40 days of preparation, the Gospel of Luke and Jesus' life. Uh, we've talked about the first two temptations that Jesus experiences when God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The first temptation was uh, what I got to talk about a couple weeks ago, turning bread into stone. And uh, then Satan also tempts Jesus, as we learned last week with Austin, um, Sorry, I'm flipping over back to four because I was in the wrong spot uh, about worshiping him. And then this week, Satan's going to tempt him again. Now, uh, I think God has something that he wishes to remind us about today. But the only way that we can get it is to actually follow the trail of this conversation. So that's what I'd like for us to do this morning. Read with me Luke chapter four. We're going to start in verse nine. This is the third temptation before Jesus begins his public ministry. It says, The devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then Satan actually quotes Scripture straight from Psalm 91. Satan says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You see, what Satan has been trying to tempt Jesus with is to say, does God really love you? Does God really care? Will God actually take care of your needs? God doesn't want you to go hungry. You should take things into your own hands. You know that you're supposed to rule over all of this at some point, so why don't you just take the shortcut? 
hey, throw yourself off of here. God's not going to let you get hurt. Doesn't he actually love you? And Satan actually tries to throw scripture back at Jesus. But Jesus does what he has done the first two times. He answers Satan with scripture to correct Satan. Verse 12, he says, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, Satan's not going to leave Jesus alone for very long, but he does leave him at this point. Now, what Jesus does is he actually quotes, as we have learned, uh, from a passage in Deuteronomy. Okay, He quotes Deuteronomy 6 earlier in the first one, Deuteronomy 8 in the second one, and he's back in Deuteronomy 6 again for this one. So let's just flip back and get the context again. We're just going to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. This is what Jesus quotes. He doesn't quote the entire thing uh, because Satan uh, also knows it. Jesus gets what the actual context is, but it's helpful for us. Only one small piece that Jesus leaves out. Verse 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's what he quotes. This is what he left out. As you did at Massah. As you did at Massah. Okay, so what happened at Massah that Jesus would quote this, right? We kind of have to follow the text a little bit. Well, what happened at Massah, we actually find back in Exodus chapter 17. So flip back a little bit more. We're going to jump back to Exodus chapter 17. Now, before I can give us this story. We just need a little bit of context of what's going on here in Exodus. Exodus is the, the whole book is a story that's just about how God comes and rescues Israel out of bondage, uh, slavery in Egypt, okay? God does this with these beautiful, amazing, humbling, miraculous powers to bring Egypt to its knees where they would finally release Israel. When they do that, the Egyptians actually uh, because of God's mighty hand, give the Israelites a whole bunch of like gold and silver and all the stuff. Basically, uh, they make them rich as they leave. Okay, Israelites have seen God do all this stuff. God leads them out into the wilderness. They get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming behind them. God is with them. He's been with them in a pillar of cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. But they get to the sea, and they all look at Moses like, why did you bring us out here? Pharaoh's coming. Now we're out in the desert. Weren't there enough graves for us to be buried back in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here just so we can die here? And of course, what does God do? He opens up the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. Pharaoh's army comes in. Pharaoh's army is lost to the sea, destroyed. God saves them. One chapter later, in chapter 14, they actually get out to the uh, desert. They've been in it for just a couple of days. And they're thirsty. Like, why did God lead us out here into the desert? Now there's nothing to drink. We're all going to die of thirst. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt to die? And what does God do? God provides water. He makes it sweet, drinking water for them. Then the next chapter, they're out walking around and they say, what are we going to eat? Why did God bring us out here into the desert? We're starving. We're just going to starve to death. Why couldn't he have just killed us in Egypt? And what does God do? He provides frosted flakes. That's literally kind of what manna is, just little sweet flakes that they find. Why did God bring us out here? Now all we get is frosted flakes. We wish we had some meat. And so what does God do? God brings quail to them so they can have meat as well. And now we find ourselves here in chapter 17. They have seen time and time and time and time again 
in this story that God is with them, that God cares, that God sees them, and God is going to provide for them. Verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin. This is the area around Mount Sinai. So it's not like Sin, like you did something bad, but Sin, like the area around Mount Sinai. Traveling from place to place, as the Lord commanded, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Not the first time that this has happened before. It's happened in just their very recent past. Like we're talking like a couple weeks, maybe a month or two. So they quarreled with Moses, fought with Moses, and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Do you see that? That's exactly what is being discussed in Deuteronomy when Moses is reminding the people in Deuteronomy 6 of what happened before. It's what Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4. He quotes Deuteronomy, which is directly connected right here to our story in Exodus 17. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Same thing, over and over and over and over again. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Then the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? They have seen so much of God's unbelievable hand, his mighty power, his provision, and his care. And yet here we are, just months into this journey, and they are still asking, is God really here? Does God really care? Will God actually take care of us? This story becomes actually a really important teaching moment for Israel. In fact, it's something that generations later, they're still pointing back to. Flip with me now. I said we're going to follow this trail through Scripture to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. You see, Israel had an ongoing problem. The problem of Israel is also a problem that you and I find ourselves in way too often when we're in the wilderness. We're tempted to stop believing, stop trusting that God is going to take care of us. And so in Psalm 95, the psalmist wants Israel to remember, not to forget, what God has done in the past so that they can trust him in their present. Psalm 95, starting in verse 6, says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So the psalmist wants Israel to remember. He's like, hey, guys, we cannot forget who our God is. He's the maker. He's the one who did all this. He created all of this. You and I, he owns it all. Not only that, though, but we are his people. He takes care of us. He puts us down in green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. We are the flock under his care. All right, keep reading. Today, dear Israel, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness. You see, 
hearkening straight back to there. Now, look at what he says. Where your ancestors tested me, God says, they tried me, like put them on trial, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. You see, because the people would not trust that God was for them and with them and would provide for them and cared for them. They kept questioning God and testing God and saying, God, you're not actually for us. God said, fine. Eventually, it was actually a little bit further down the road when God said, I want you to take the promised land that I've given to you. And they're like, nah, there's giants in there. Like, they're just gonna destroy us. Basically saying, God, you're you're probably really not that strong and really not that powerful and probably not that good. And so we're just not going to listen to you. And God said, fine, you know what? Next 40 years, you're going to wander until the generation that's over the age of 20 dies. And everybody under 20 is the ones that are going to come in and inherit the land. How many of you are under the age of 20 right now? Oh, you're the only ones that get to go to the promised land. Congratulations. No, but that's what happened with Israel. Okay. Now, what's interesting is this passage in Psalm 95 actually gets quoted by the writer of Hebrews, all right? This is our last passage we're going to look at. We're following this. Luke 4 takes us to Deuteronomy 6, which brings us back to Exodus, the original story, which then later in Psalm 95 gets discussed by the psalmist for all of Israel. And now in Hebrews, it's going to get discussed again in the New Testament, Something different is going to happen here, though. So look with me. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Now, uh, let me give just a quick little background on what's going on before we read this text. Um, well, actually, let's read the text, and then I'll give it a little bit of context, all right? It's going to sound pretty familiar anyway, because you've kind of heard it before. There's only one small little change, but it's a very, very important change. Verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, this is Hebrews 3, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why. I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Verse 11. Does this sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> the, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95. All right. Exactly what was written to remind Israel that God is good and God can be trusted. And they shouldn't harden their hearts. And they should trust that God wants to do something and will take care of them. They're in the wilderness. However, there's a few things that are important to understand about Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is actually uh, writing to show us that Jesus is the perfect replacement for Moses. Moses had led Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Jesus leads the church out of bondage and slavery to sin and death. Okay? That's actually at the beginning of chapter 3. You look at your header, it says Jesus is greater than Moses, all right? Now we get into this portion where the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting Psalm 95. But he's applying it not to Israel, but to the church, okay? So uh, this 40 years in the wilderness that Israel experienced 
he's now saying that the church, the time that we are currently in between when Jesus resurrected and when Jesus has returned, that's like the time that we're living in, okay? That this is our wilderness. That we are currently, right now, living in the wilderness. We haven't yet entered the promised land. Jesus has already gone there, okay? He's going to bring us, but we're still in this wilderness, this in-between time, all right? So um, there is a, uh, there's a minor change that makes a major difference, and it's found in verse 10. The beginning of verse 10, the word there in the Greek is dio. That is why. That is why. You're like, what in the world does that have anything to do with it? Listen to how uh, Dr. Peter Enns explains this, okay? The writer does this to make a gripping theological point in his application of this psalm to the life of the church. If the church age is analogous to the 40-year period, in other words, if what we're experiencing right now in the church is kind of like the same thing as the 40 years that Israel wandered in the desert. We're in this in-between time, all right? It is inappropriate to characterize it as the period of wrath as it was for Israel. For Israel, that 40 years was a period of wrath. They wouldn't listen to God. But for us, because of what the writer of Hebrews does by changing one word, it's no longer appropriate for us to see this period as a period of wrath It is inappropriate for us to see it that way because Christ has come. The climax of redemptive history is here. This is not a period of wrath, but as the writer correctly puts it, the period in which we see God's activity. God uses time in the desert so that we can actually see him move. You're not under a period of wrath because you haven't entered into the promised land yet. Instead, you're actually in this period where we get to see God move. All right? Now, you're like, all right, T, that's really, really interesting. Wow, you took me from Luke all the way to the Old Testament and you showed me the original thing and then it was like in Psalms and now you brought me to Hebrews. Like, that's cool, but I'm not a theology nerd. Like, what does it mean? Why do I even care? That's a great question. And if you weren't asking that question, you should have been asking that question. It's very important. I think that there's two things that God wants us to catch this morning. The first is this. God's leading to the desert is not for our destruction, but for our deliverance. When God leads you into the desert, it's not to destroy you, it's to deliver you. You see, when we go into the desert, all kinds of things begin to get stripped away. All the places we normally look for our salvation begin to fall away. All the things that we think that we're strong enough and we're good enough and we're smart enough, and if we just do this or if we do that, if we make this thing happen that we can figure it out on ourselves, in the desert, that stuff gets stripped away. If you don't get outside help, you will not survive. And God brings us, even now, his church into the desert, not though to destroy us, but to deliver us, to show us that we don't actually live by bread alone. We live on the word of God, that God is actually the gift. Way too often we find ourselves thinking that we need food or water or a husband or a job or a better job or some more money or less sickness or an A on that exam or I got to get into that college or I got to have this relationship or I need to please that person. And those things we think are needs for us. We have to stop viewing our circumstances through our stomachs. When you become addicted to a substance, that substance becomes something you need. 
or at least you think you need it. Your mind tells you you need it. Your body tells you you need it. But the thing that you think you need is actually the thing that is destroying you. And the same thing is true for you and I. Now, maybe you've never struggled with an addiction before to a substance, but I promise you there are all kinds of things that you and I are addicted to. I know because I see it in my own life. We're addicted to money. We're addicted to love. We're addicted to other people's approval of ourselves. We're addicted to uh, how we feel. We're addicted to the jobs that we have, uh, the 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 type of person we are, what kind of grades we get, uh, how we do in sports or whatever other activity we have. We're addicted to so many things in our lives. And those things start to tell us, no, we need this. We need this. Your body tells you that. Your mind tells you this. But sometimes the very things we think we need are actually the things that are killing us. Jesus brings us into the wilderness to strip those things away. Because when those things begin to fall by the wayside, we begin to recognize that what we actually need is God himself. And the good news is, is God is ready and willing to give you what you actually need. We don't need to test God's goodness. We need to trust his goodness. That's the difference for most of us, for many of us. Um, There's a guy who wrote me a couple of weeks ago, uh, was after the, the beginning of this series. Um, I got his permission to share his story, so I'd like to share it with you now. Um, I'll still keep it anonymous, even though he told me I could tell you who it was. But he just said, hey, man, I just wanted to let you in on some work that God was doing through TLC yesterday. This was two Sundays ago. He says, my wife and I, we've been looking for a house for a little while, and we've been getting discouraged that we keep missing out on some that we really like. We've been struggling with how high we can afford to bid wanting to leave room for other things, but also knowing the market has been going crazy and houses are really expensive. So last week, we looked at a house that both of us fell in love with, like immediately. And so I spent time on Friday and Saturday determining the highest we were willing to go on our offer and double-checking that it fit our budget. He says, just a little bit of background. I've struggled with tithing. I've always struggled with tithing. There were different points in our lives where we tithed faithfully, but a number of other times where we simply made excuses. A few months ago, I was putting together our budget for the whole house thing, and I thought about tithing, but I left it off the list for our monthly spending. I felt a tinge of guilt at the time, but again, I just logicked my way out of it. Fast forward to yesterday. This is two Sundays ago. He says, when you started talking about the lie and temptation of self-sufficiency, it hit me like a punch to the face, which is actually what I try to do. Punch to the face. I became acutely aware that I'd been holding on to that lie. I believe that the abounding blessings that God has given to us have actually been accomplished by my strength and ability, and I've been wrestling with God on this for years. I talked to my wife today about what I was thinking, and we both agreed that we needed to redo our budget, put tithing first on the list, and then let everything else fall where it may. When we put the offer in tomorrow, it is with a different attitude. We are trusting that God knows best, If this is what he wants, then we believe we will get it. And at the price, he knows we can afford. And if not, we won't and we'll be just fine. So, you want to know what happened? They got the house. And they got the house way cheaper than they thought that they would. In fact, he said, uh, 
every house that they had put an offer in, they had had anywhere from seven to 10 or more offers. This particular house, they put the offer in, and there was only one other offer. Would God have been good if they didn't get the house? Yeah. Yeah, he would. And you're like, all right, we're in church. Of course you have to say that. Would they have gotten the house if they decided to disobey God's voice and continued to leave tithing off their budget? Hmm. I know this answer. 100%. Yes. Yes, they would have. Now, can I explain to you why I believe that with my whole heart? Because the writer of Hebrews reminds me that even when I fail a test, God's love is still there. And so if this was the house God wanted them to get when they had put tithing first, then this also would have been the house that God wanted them to get if they had failed the test and not put tithing first. This is what's so remarkable about our God. He brings us into the desert as a test to show us that he is the only thing that we truly need. But it's never about how good you can be, how awesome you can be, how faithful you can be, how obedient you can be. It's never about whether or not your love perseveres. I was reminded of this just this past week. Any of you actually um, reading along uh, with some of us, the Walt Wangren book, um, Reliving the Passion during Lent? I've been reading that. It's probably my third year going through it. Man, it's just been it's so good. This past Tuesday, uh, we're reminded of the story when Jesus is talking to the disciples at the Last Supper, and, and he lovingly says to them, um, Tonight, I'm going to die. It's the third time he's told them that. They didn't really believe him the first two times. They don't really believe him the third time. And then Jesus says, and all of you are going to fall away. You're all going to desert me. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, all right? I think it's actually an incredibly loving thing for, for Jesus to say because he's telling them ahead of time that he knows that this is going to happen and he still loves them, all right? Now, Peter, though, Peter's like, nah, man, like not me. Like maybe all them other cats, and you know all the disciples are giving Peter side eye. Like, but Peter's like, nah. Like I don't care what anybody else does. I'm sticking with you, Jesus. I'm with you. I like. I'm. I'm ready to roll. We can go right now. Like I'll die with you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Peter can't believe it. And he's like, no way, no way, no way, no way, no how ain't gonna happen. But then of course, what happens? He's warming himself by a fire, and somebody says, hey, are you with Jesus? What? <laughs> why, why would you think that? Oh, I don't even know that cat. And somebody else is like, yeah, but like, like you got that like northern Galilean accent, man, like one of his followers. Like, isn't that you? <laughs> Please. Got no accent? From Grand Rapids, man. We ain't got accents. <laughs> and then the servant girl. It's like, no, 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 I, th I think I saw you. I think I saw you with him, like earlier. He's like, man, don't even talk to me. You don't know me. You don't know anything about me. I don't even know that MFR. Why did Torn have to say MFR? That's like really, really bad. Because 
Peter actually calls down curses and swears by them to prove that he doesn't know Jesus. And then, cock-a-doodle-doo. And Peter's left there like, in fact, one of the Gospels say that Peter and Jesus lock eyes in that moment. And it says that Peter runs out weeping. Weeping. You see, when we're in the wilderness, there's all kinds of tests on whether we will trust that God is loving and for us and good. And there's always a question, will we listen to God's voice or will we listen to our own voice? Will we try to figure it out ourselves? Will we make it our, our, our own plans? Will we go our own way? And there will be times when, like Jesus in the wilderness, we will be like, Satan, away. I got this. And there will be other times when, like me, you will fall victim to the temptation. You will fail the test. Hebrews tells us that even in those moments, God still loves us. You see, friends, it was never about your ability to persevere in love. It's not your love that survives. It's his love. It's not your love that perseveres. It's his love. It's always been his love. And his love is here today. So no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how you've blown it, this has been a hard season. God wants you to know that he loves you and that nothing else is going to give you the life that you're looking for. The wilderness is intended to strip it away. But because of God's love, he deserves our praise. He deserves our willingness to say thank you. And because of God's love, it's a reminder that we can always turn around and come back. And that's, that's what I think God wanted to say to you today because I know it's what he wanted to say to me. So what I'm going to do right now is I just want to pray and I'm going to give us a little bit of space just to thank God and talk to him. The band's going to come up so we can worship God appropriately as he deserves. And let's right now just simply say, Father God, you are everything that we need. There is nothing else in this world that's going to satisfy our thirst, that's going to fill our stomachs. We want you and you alone. And so God, we thank you for the wilderness. As hard as it is, as painful as it is at times, it is the place where everything gets stripped away and we find that you are what we need But God, when, when we fail the test, thank you that it was never about how good we could be. It was never about how strong our love could be, how bold our faith could be, how obedient we are. It was always about your love, that your love perseveres, your love never gives up, your love triumphs. And so we say thank you. God, let us live our lives in gratitude, not putting you to the test, believing in your goodness. And yet, God, when we fail, remind us 
that our salvation is not held in our weak and feeble arms, but rather in your strong and mighty, perfect arms. We love you, Jesus, in your name. We pray all of these things.